difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Scott Tobias, here with... Tasha Robinson, Genevieve Kosky, and Keith Epps. Every week we get together to talk over a classic film and consider how it relates to a current movie. Today, we're flashing back to those awkward early days of boyhood adolescence, when you're not a kid anymore, but you're not in high school yet either, and you cannot fathom the mysteries of adulthood. Keith... I can say without hesitation that those were the worst years of my life. How were they for you? Let me think back. We're talking like 13, 14. Yeah. It's probably when I got deep into the work of Isaac Asimov and played a lot <laughs> of computer role-playing games on my Apple IIe and became the film critic for my junior high school newspaper, panning popular movies like Teen Wolf, um, and I heard about that. Uh, you know, reader feedback. You know, it was a little, a little more direct in junior high than it is <laughs> even now uh, with the internet. So um, you're coming into your own, in other words. I, I guess so. I'd say there were years of transition. No, I, I was, uh, I was very busy being ostracized in those years. By the time Penny Marshall's Big came along in 1988, I was 17 years old and had the confidence and swagger I have today. <laughs> but I could still recognize the potent fantasy of skipping past that stage in your life altogether. Becoming a grown-up was about gaining your independence, but more than that, it was about knowledge and development. You were no longer a work in progress, learning one excruciating lesson after another, but a fully formed being who could command a certain amount of respect. If you're a 13 or 14-year-old in an adult body... As today's pairing imagines, it feels great to be older, even if you're uncomfortable in that skin, too. Shazam! Wow, Keith, <laughs> you've transformed into a middle-aged dad. What's your superpower? Getting through my part of the script in one take. Okay, let's give it a shot. What's your pairing this time? The new DCEU movie, Shazam, tells the story of a 14-year-old foster kid named Billy Batson who gains the power of becoming a superhero just by saying the word Shazam. Shazam! Yeah, that, that's not working for you, Keith. Go ahead. So Shazam has super strength. He's bulletproof. He can charge phones with blast electricity from his hands, and eventually he figures out how to fly. But he can also buy all the junk food he wants, and nobody can stop him. The film, Shazam, is basically a souped-up version of Penny Marshall's Big. In fact, the new film acknowledges the debt by paying homage to Big's famed piano duet of F.A.O. Schwartz. Though the two films ultimately have different things to say about the trials of adolescence, both Shazam and Big are comic fantasies that score laughs off what early teens imagine adulthood to be. Today we'll look at Big, which was Penny Marshall's breakthrough film and a significant leap forward for her star, Tom Hanks, who had spent most of the 80s trying to find a vehicle worthy of his talent. Then next week, we'll bring in Shazam!, the silliest and most family-friendly of the DCEU movies so far, and that's saying something, given that Aquaman came out just last year. But for now, I ask Zoltar, can we please listen to the original 1988 trailer for Big? My wish is granted. For Josh Baskin, life was a little unfair. Until he made a little wish. I wish I were big. Sweetheart, it's 7.30, are you up? 20th Century Fox presents... Tom Hanks. Ah! Big. I turned into a grown-up, Mom. I made this wish on a machine, and it 
and it turned me into a grown-up. So now what? You get a job. You cannot get a job. I play with all of this stuff, and then I tell them what I think. Can they pay you for that? Suckers! Vice President, he's only been here a week. What were you like when you were younger? Go oh, well, that wasn't much different. Who are you? I'm his girlfriend. I want to spend the night with you. Do you mean sleep over? Yeah. Okay. But I get to be on top. What is so special about Basket? He's a grown-up. The 80s were weird. Within a two-year span, studios released four Freaky Friday-style body-swapping comedies including Like Father Like Son with Dudley Moore and Kirk Cameron, Vice Versa with Judge Reinhold and Fred Savage, and 18 Again with George Burns and Charlie Schlatter. The fourth was big, and it's the only one with any staying power. There are plenty of reasons why. Tom Hanks, in his first great role since Splash, channels the sweetness and whimsy of a 13-year-old trapped in the body of a 30-year-old. Elizabeth Perkins, as the toy company executive who takes an interest in this peculiar young upstart, is both disarming and heartbreaking in a very difficult role. And its director, Penny Marshall, deftly manages the tone, even as Gary Ross and Ann Spielberg's script lead the audience into some strange and deeply uncomfortable situations. And it should be uncomfortable, because it's about a boy coming of age and losing his innocence in the process. And that's not easy under the best of circumstances. Before he makes a fateful wish to Zoltar, the fortune-telling machine, Young Josh Baskin is a kid who's still going to the carnival with his doting parents, and he hasn't hit his growth spurt yet, which makes him too small for a carnival ride, leading to unfathomable humiliation in front of an older girl he likes. When his wish to be big is granted, and he turns into Tom Hanks, it's immediately revealed to be a curse. He terrifies his mother, played by Mercedes Rule, who suspects this older man has done something awful to her son. He flees to a flop house in New York City, which is filled with the sounds of anger, gunshots, and seedy characters. And even when he lucks into a job at a toy company and quickly works his way up the ranks, he isn't sure how to handle Perkins's character, an executive who not only likes him, but seems to like like him. And how do you process those new feelings in a 30-year-old's body? The connection between Josh and Susan, Perkins's character, should feel much skeevier than it does, especially once the innocence of their initial sleepover leads to a much more intimate adult relationship. Before sex, Josh is at a party asking for a milkshake to wash down the awful taste of beluga caviar. After sex, he's asking his secretary for a cup of black coffee. The contrast is funny, but it should be unsavory, at least on paper. I'm reminded a little of a moment between Albert Brooks and Meryl Streep in Defending Your Life, where they're in the afterlife, and Streep is remembering her kids, whom she left behind in the accident that killed her. But, she decides, she feels okay about it. Something about the context of the place makes it possible for her to bear the loss without feeling burdened by it. That's the magic of big for me. In the context of this fantasy, an older woman sleeping with a 13-year-old can be processed as funny and ridiculous, and in the end, surprisingly bittersweet for both parties. Nevertheless, the question of how big plays now is hard to avoid. Shea Serrano wrote a piece two years ago in The Ringer called Big is Secretly a Horror Movie that lays out the wreckage Josh's adventures leave in everyone else's life. Serrano writes, quote, It's a fun movie and a silly movie and a lighthearted movie. Except, here's the thing, it's super not any of those things. It's the reverse of all of those things. The only way it works as those things is if you look at it through Josh's eyes which is what you're supposed to do because Josh is a centerpiece. 
And of course, Serrano's right, especially when he talks about how traumatic the experience is for Josh's mother. But perspective matters too. We do see the film through Josh's eyes, and his actions are explicable at every turn, whether he's playing with silly string and robot buildings, or following through on a 13-year-old's very real interest in the opposite sex. Big is a horror film when you think about it, but it's not a horror film when you experience it. Or at least it isn't for me. <laughs> we'll see how everybody else feels about it after the break. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Yes. I, I still don't get it. What? What don't you get, Josh? Well, there's a million robots that turn into something. And this is a building that turns into a robot. What's fun about playing with a building? That's not any fun. This is a skyscraper. Well, couldn't it be like a, a, a robot that turns into, into something, like a, like a bug or something? A bug? Yeah, like a big prehistoric insect with maybe like giant claws that could pick up a car and, and crush it like that. <laughs> a prehistoric transformer? Interesting. Gentlemen, it, So the robot turns into a bug. Ah, uh, gentlemen, oh, listen, listen, if you would just... You've got a very good idea here. The robot turns into a bug. Uh, this yeah, is a great yeah. idea. Someone's well, a water bug? Yeah. Different sizes and things? All right, so, as I set up in the intro, Big plays very interestingly <laughs> in the year 2019. But I kind of want to start with this basic question. Keith, Tosh, and I, we were all, I guess, in our late teens or so when Big came out. Mid-teens. I'm not but, as old as you. All right. We're in that range of... People who go to the movies, right? In the in, in all right, so, <laughs> which implies a very specific. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so we we probably saw it in a theater like everyone else. I, I don't think I actually did. I think really? I saw it later on home video right, for well, what just, that's worth. But you saw it say in the eighties or late early nineties, maybe. Yeah. Well, okay. this, let's say this isn't my first time seeing. It, okay. Sure. Okay. So so then and now, Keith and Tasha, and then Genevieve. After you, I always want to know your experience with Big. Let's start with the older ones first. Well, I, I saw it in the theater and really liked it, and I don't know. I maybe saw it one more time after that because there was that was a time in my life when I would when I would watch something and then watch it again when it came out on VHS, mm-hmm. um, and I really enjoyed it. And I, I think it's uh, whether words fun and lighthearted and all that stuff. It definitely plays that way, and it plays that way a little bit more if you're closer to Josh's age. Because I watched it, I reviewed it for I think the Dissolve. Remember the Dissolve? Yeah, you uh, did uh, <laughs> a couple of years ago. I read that and, review. Uh, as a and I was already a parent at that point, but even you know that aside, as as a grown up, you can't help but see some of the consequences that Serrano talks about in, in his piece. And I don't think the movie is blind to those either. I'm sure we'll get into that a little bit more. But it's also like if you dwell on the those, it really is a fairly horrific film. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You know, for for people who are not Josh. How about you, Tasha? Yeah, I think I saw it when May I was maybe just a little bit older, and I feel like there is. A period, I mean, scientifically speaking, girls mature earlier than boys. And part of the process of maturing is going through a a phase somewhere along the line where you like 
kind of aggressively reject stuff that you think is too young for you. Mm -hmm. I think you're exactly right when you say it plays very well. If you're within a couple of certain age range bands, if you're young enough to see this as like a fun fantasy about what adulthood might be like, or if you're old enough to look back on it as like kind of a nostalgia piece about what it was like being young and fantasizing about it. But if you're in the wrong age range, I I remember for me this playing like, a dumb boy fantasy. Like, mm. that's not what being a grown up is going to look like, you silly kid. And the fact that it all revolved around, like, the idea of adulthood still somehow being about playing with toys and one of those toys being a, a grown ass woman, like, a lot of the film <laughs> kind of skewed yeah, me ex- out. I did not expect you to go there with that. Oh, yeah. Well, the robot building was also. Okay, so his. I mean, I, it could have been a, a female robot. We don't know. It's not specified. Uh, that's true. I, it, you think that's a male building? Really? How how phallocentric <laughs> yeah. of you? No. I I mean I saw I saw the fun of the movie and uh yeah, it was an it was an era when Tom Hanks was in a lot of fun stuff but I don't think it landed for me where it's supposed to land because I was I, I definitely in the in the wrong place for the specific fantasy this movie is selling for me it was always just a, kind of a question of like how are we supposed to identify with this kid who kind of behaves like an idiot as a grown up and yet he lives in a world where everybody finds that acceptable and like as i went through and watched all like older adult movies where this kind of thing also happened movies like uh, peter sellers in being there i always had a problem with like the idiot person plot where there's somebody who's inherently kind of dumb but just because of the way the world around them is structured everybody takes what they do as genius like i never loved that plot so what, what, i think the, 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 the plot is playing out in real life now that they, yeah. like the, Donald Trump is, is compared all the time to yeah, and I don't like it in real life either. <laughs> really political all of a sudden. Yeah, uh, I don't. I mean, I don't love that. Plausible though. I don't love that. I don't love that comparison because it implies a certain amount of innocence that I think our current president does not possess. Um, but at the same time, I, I think the circumstances um, are very specific here in that he succeeds because he is in a toy company and a toy company has kind of lost its way because of market testing and and the the Robert Lo, you know Robert Loja's character someone who actually recognizes they just recognize that it's a child in a man's body recognizes the spirit that he's that his company's lost uh, touch with and I think that to me makes it you know, plausible is a strong word in this situation, but that makes me buy into the reality of this film a little bit more than and if you become like, you know, auto executive or, or commodities trader. Yeah, or something. it's clever. I mean, and I, and I like lines like, what's a market report? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Uh, Genevieve, how about you? I honestly don't know when was the first time I saw Big because Big was just such a part of my childhood. This was a movie that my mom loved. I loved it too. Is but like I just it was a movie that we would put on again and again, like on rainy weekends or whatever. Like we, I I can still picture in my head like the VHS tape that we, my mom, had like dubbed off of the rental VHS and like had like the handwritten label, you know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> look it up, younger younger listeners. <laughs> so Big has always been a comfort food movie for me, but I don't think I've honestly revisited it since I've been an adult. If I have, I, I wasn't engaging with it uh, the way I, I did this time. So it was definitely an interesting experience to go back to a movie that I know so well, know all the beats of, but am viewing through this very different lens that you all are talking about. I'm, I'm not a parent, but I could still like definitely see the horror in it a lot more than I imagine I ever did as a kid. But as a kid, I also like 
I mean, obviously, I thought the movie was fun. I like Tom Hanks. I mean, I've always liked Tom Hanks, probably because <laughs> Big was such a part of my formative years. But even as a kid, I, I have memories of it not being just a romp, you know, like that stuff uh, in, in the flop house is really scary, mm-hmm. you know, and the end is pretty bittersweet, especially if you don't really have a context for why that relationship between Josh and Susan is icky, which I didn't as a, as a 10 year old, you know, and so I think it was just kind of maybe my first experience with a comedy that wasn't just like a kid-centric comedy, like just really like big and loud or, or like an animated film. You know, it, it, it had a little more tonal levels to it, I think, than a lot of movies I was probably watching around that time. So watching it this time, I think I could appreciate that even more but it's also kind of highlighted to me that this is a weird movie in a lot of ways you know i wouldn't i don't think i'd go so far as to call it a horror movie Mm -hmm. um but there's a lot of really strange around it especially with everything having to do with mercedes rules character or in how the movie like integrates her response uh to what's happening to josh and how it's like very sidelined in a way that like wait this is like a, a massive traumatic event in her life in both of their lives but we're only getting her part of that trauma in mostly comedic bits Mm -hmm. um there's a couple parts that allow her to to do more with it which i'm grateful for but short version i still really like big but it is definitely like tasha was saying it is a movie that speaks to you in different ways uh depending on what band of of life experience you're, you're currently in i do think that its fundamental problem is a very 80s problem um but also just a very like all all the conversations that we're having right now about like diversity and having other perspectives and telling other people's stories. This is a story told expressly from the point of view of a writer who is imagining the point of view of a 13-year-old boy vaulted into this kind of initially challenging but like ultimately very fun, rewarding version of adulthood and nobody else's perspective really matters. I did have kind of the passing thought uh, while watching it though I didn't really interrogate it too much but uh, this is really kind of a movie in a way about white, white male privilege (laughs) the way that he is able to just uh as a child fail up not fail up but just stumble upward in this company and i think that is a lens that we are starting to appreciate now and it's a lens that can be applied to a lot of 80s comedies i think the weird thing about it though is i think it would play fine if we didn't have a couple of pretty nuanced performances from Mercedes role and Elizabeth Perkins, like Mm. Elizabeth Perkins role. Like you can, you can see the whole narrative of like the story that she's playing out and it just doesn't fit with Josh's story at all. And, and that for me is one of the most interesting things about the movie is these two, the way these two characters dovetail. Uh, I guess I'm skipping ahead to like how it plays for us today, which is kind of the next question, but it, it kind of fascinates me just like the nuance of her character as somebody who's very clearly like actively trying to make it in a male-dominated business Mm -hmm. where her opinions are shrugged off. So she's been like ruthlessly sleeping her way to the top, like taking on men and discarding them, like moving her way up. Uh, She's become like this kind of ruthless, heartless person. She sees Josh as successful and just tries to seduce him and it completely doesn't work. And then bit by bit, like she kind of comes back into being a person and figuring out what she wants as a person. And it's so completely lost on Josh, but it's not lost on the audience. And I think that's actually a pretty clever trick to play. 
Yeah, you get a lot of her story, and I think it's a richer movie for it, um, and for that reason. And Perkins is great in it too, and and uh, this is really only like kind of her second big role after About Last Night. One of the things I love about the fact that we get so much of her story is she never spells it out. There's never a monologue where she says, you know, and then I had to sleep with all these men, mm-hmm. or and then I tried to talk to my boss, but he blew me off. Like she she never explains herself. It's all just there. It's there without exposition. And I also like that a lot. Yeah. Well, you have John Hurd kind of giving us that ex- <laughs> that exposition for her as he just ruthlessly negs her. John know? Hurd is also such a broad character in this. Yeah. And he's so he's so tremendously 80s executive. Mm-hmm. And he's also just such a hoot. Yeah. It's like the perfect amount of petty. I love it. Elizabeth Perkins character is a type that was so familiar in the 80s, too. I think there was a lot of films that were trying to deal with women in the workplace maybe not even explicitly uh, you know like working girl but just about like where do they stand how do they how do they get by are they you know human enough do they have to be these like machines i think it's uh, somebody like helen slater and the secret of my success which had come out the year before and her again being this just hyper ambitious career woman who who kind of like learns to loosen up when she's around michael j fox's character and it's just kind of a similar dynamic even though you know we're dealing in this case with a 13 year old <laughs> side of the 30 year old's body um so that's kind of interesting the other thing that kind of struck me too if you're thinking about talking about how things that were just assumed in the 80s or understood in the 80s that, that kind of stand out now is is that flop house scene and how much the films of the 80s enforced um, people's fears about what the inner, inner city was yeah. like. That, well, not that, even this is Times Square. Yeah, I mean, but, Times Square was different then. Like, though, like the, this movie is my context for pre-Disneyfied Times Square. Sure. You know, it, like when I think of it, like I think of how it's portrayed in Big. Well, I mean, I mean, you know, it's it's not you're several years away from Taxi Driver, but not so yeah. many years away from Taxi yeah. Driver. I hadn't seen Taxi Driver yeah. when I saw Big for the first time. No, no. I just point of comparison. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We, sort of marked... we hadn't seen Taxi Driver when you saw Big. <laughs> I know, right? It's just sort of marked as the big city and, mm-hmm. and, and if you're if you're uh you well, know secret of my success also opens with like isn't he like arrive in new york and like stumbles into a gunfight it's like within the <laughs> yeah. first couple minutes yeah yeah and he's got a, he's got the neighbors next door who are having sex and he does the little conducting thing to remember yeah. that good stuff um anyway <laughs> uh so so those are one of those like marks of the era that i think you gotta go back and re-examine because you just you, there are these assumptions that you made that kind of stick with you you don't even realize it and they really shape your understanding of what new york and the inner city is like without even you know if you you're somebody like myself who lived in the suburbs i uh, i think it's it's sort of telling that the big threat that he faces the one that makes him break down and cry is somebody speaking spanish like yeah. part of and part of that is like the clear anger going on. But he seems more frightened of this stranger outside, like yelling on the phone in Spanish than he seems at the gunshots outside. Mm-hmm. One of those a, things is more of a threat. I guess I didn't read that in Spanish. You got a point, though. I mean, yeah. I, I just read it as someone is yelling loudly right outside my door and it sounds like they're about to come in to my room. It's very othering, though. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah. it's very clear that that it's not like the guy's banging on his door. Like, it's no threat to him. It's aimed entirely elsewhere but for a 13 year old kid from the the very white suburbs this is threatening and he was only 12 years old at that point that was before his birthday (laughs) (laughs) oh that's right there is a birthday in the in the movie um i just i I like to i simplified it in the intro that he was 13 because it was just you know we're talking about a movie about a kid in his teens it's okay it's confusing when he starts as 12 that's not that's okay scott he's both pre and i failed i failed you all again but uh (laughs) jumping back a little 
little bit to like talking about the era and expectations. I mean, to me, Susan uh, plays like a character from nine to five who doesn't have a cadre of female friends to back her up. Mm. You know, she's she's very much in the same setting that, as you say, that their era that was trying to reckon with the idea of women in the workplace. And I think you're right about Working Girl, but I also see her as as dealing with some of the same same things that nine to five deals with, except that film ends up being about like female friendship and partnership. And she's by herself. Like she doesn't have anybody to turn to, uh, which seems to be like why she's landed in the place that she has. You know, and she's having to be so you know, aggressive all the time that she ends up getting herself in bad spots. I mean, I think there's a, like a very small moment at a party where she's with talking to Robert Loggia about, you know, some business maneuver that they should probably be making. And he's like, Susan, have a drink. It's a party. You know, it's, it's, that's, it's tough. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's, well, it's a it, tough situation it, for it her. It comes across as, you know, him blowing her off. I, I don't know. I, to me, that felt very coded. It felt very much not like you're not relaxing at the party. It, it was just like, you have no business talking oh. uh, business to me. You know, because it's the one place where we see her try to do that on her own instead of hiding behind like the various male partners that she's worked with. And we see how it goes. Hmm. I didn't know. didn't think of it that way. Hmm. Other Um, perspectives. (laughs) Yeah. So uh, I want to talk a little bit more about Tom Hanks as as well, because this is a pretty big moment in his career. And Mm -hmm. this is a really, I think, exceptionally good performance. I mean, uh, he had done Splash. He had done bachelor party but he had really bounced around into He'd done bosom buddies he was on bosom buddies <laughs> uh, but but his film career had not uh really been worthy of his talent i don't think until this film yeah I, you can see him like trying to break out of that a little bit i mean he would do like silly comedies like the money pit and after yeah. this he did the burbs but you could see like nothing in common and was a tr- attempt to like try to do something a little more serious dr- dramatic uh, with jackie gleason you know that yeah movie, that movie? yeah I mean, and then it, and then like punchline was the same year as this so it's oh definitely boy. like tom hanks trying to do things other than the tom hanks type yeah, uh, but this—it's not surprising to me. This is the breakthrough. This is such a fun performance, and it's so kind of taps into so many things he does really well too. It's so—I mean, it is legitimately childlike. I mean, I think you—you you, there are so many examples of adult actors who have played you know children. I mean, I think of Jack, uh, Robin Williams, Jack, <laughs> it, it, where it doesn't work for one reason or another. Usually, they just they overdo it. They just have trouble connecting to it. But there's something so sweet about. Tom Hanks and spontaneous and he gives you all these little little moments in the film that pay off you know the way he samples the hors d'oeuvres at the party the little corn apparently apparently completely improv he just just picked the corn up and and started doing that I love him even more even though he apparently takes pictures of the movie screen at movies that's not confirmed that's not confirmed what a strange thing and 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 the um, and I also really like the way he walks into the office after sleeping with Susan the way he gives a high five is so entertaining you know it reminded me the first moment that really struck me when I encountered Tom Hanks was when he was singing in Splash when he sang mm-hmm. Mr. Mango on My Shoulder. You remember that? Mm-hmm. It was again just a little improvised moment, uh, what see or seemingly improvised moment that was just so deft. And uh, this this movie has that 
all over. Yeah, apparently uh, Robin Williams was was offered the role and ended <laughs> up not taking it. It's it's way too easy to see him in this role. But uh, Robert De Niro also offered this role and wanted too much money for it. So they, wow. they, they couldn't afford him. Can you even imagine what this movie would look like with I mean, Robert De Niro? Yeah, kind of. I mean, I, I, at that point, he was he had him kind of locked into all the De Niro mannerisms. That, he was one uh, year away. Uh, uh, We're No Angels was 89, yeah, I think. Yeah, okay. All right. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking that's, just- that's the look. Look. That's when the look was we, born. We post. We just post Scott doing the look on our on our on our Facebook page. <laughs> <laughs> oh, if only we could paint you a visual picture. What would be the look we just got? Yeah. We're gonna have to take the a look. picture of that. It's amazing. What am I doing this? Wait, 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 wait. Oh my! So anyway, well, I, I'm just thinking that like everything we've been talking about with regards to that relationship between uh, Josh and Susan and how different that would be with someone like Robert De Niro I, because Tom Hanks I mean even to a certain extent today but especially at this point like he exudes the the boyish innocence that this uh, role requires you know and that I think sells the progression of that relationship in a way that while not exactly unproblematic <laughs> is maybe uh, emotionally believable at least so you're saying that Tom Hanks is more unthreatening than the guy who played yeah. Travis Bickle <laughs> yeah <laughs> I, I, I mean don't put words in my mouth scott but <laughs> i mean there is I, part of that innocence is just gormlessness though mm. i mean tom hanks just pulled off this like derpy look uh it is just so convincing as like a little kid who has absolutely no idea what the heck is going on like walking into a situation <laughs> and trying trying to like fathom what's happening around him my one gripe with that is I, I'm not sure it necessarily feels like a 13-year-old. Like most of the time to me, he feels Excuse like me, he's playing 12-year-old. Like 12-year-old. Most <laughs> of the time he feels to me like he's playing more like seven. You know, mm. when he's sitting there like bashing the action figures into each other and making yeah. vroom vroom noises, like point me at a 13-year-old that wants to be caught doing that. Yeah, I, def- I definitely had that thought uh, watching this too of like like Josh, both as played by David Moscow and Tom Hanks, like reads younger than 12. But I guess I just in the end, chalk that up to like eh, it was the 80s they didn't have smartphones and the internet kids were more innocent <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah he's a he's a little 12 year old too I, I think there's a really nice continuity between those two performances too I, I think you know he and moscow are definitely playing the same character and uh it, w- it wouldn't work nearly as well if there weren't that connection there are some fun behind the scenes stories about them actually shooting scenes with both uh oh, really? actors in the character oh, just fun. to sort oh. of see how that would play you know so hanks had like more of a physical sense of what it would look like uh, like an emotional sense of what it would look like and i do think that he really captures being way younger than he is just very effectively there's a lot of physical slapstick in this movie that i think he brings across in a really convincing way like communicating the idea of like this isn't my body and I don't know what to do with it yet and watching him like physically develop into that body is is just a little fun thing throughout the movie I mean I think the morning he wakes up and he's big is just such a amazing scene like in terms of Hanks's performance because not only is he realizing what's happened to him like he's just waking up like he's groggy you know he's like is he dreaming like the way he comes to the realization of what's 
happening and there's just so many little grace notes like checking the back of the mirror in the in the bathroom and like feeling his face and you know um he, he looks in his underpants right and uh, yeah yeah, yeah, he yeah. Gives himself a little peek. yeah 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 but somewhere in there he does uh he does this thing that's kind of like yeah like he's he's sort of communicating right. somebody's somebody's pranking yeah. me and yeah. i'm not gonna get caught at this and it's just it's like a single second of comic beat but it just comes across so well as like this pre-adolescent going you sure fooled me but yeah. like i'm i'm not falling for this yeah. i like the touch too uh if you're talking about you're gonna talk about big as a horror film then you'd follow up with the scene where he's trying to convince his mom that, that <laughs> yeah. it's really him but but i do like the touch of him initially thinking that her horror was him not wiping his shoes coming into the <laughs> oh house God, so he has to so he has to backtrack so he, and he scrapes it off i think that's a really smart touch but 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 something again i didn't realize at the time it's like yeah okay so so this guy is actually wearing her son's underwear i mean that is yeah oh yeah pretty shocking and i and it, and it didn't register to me until somebody pointed it out well in the phone call home on his birthday like i think the movie does a good job of showing us like what that call means to josh but again thinking of it from his mom's perspective like what is happening that he that, like he has to go be summoned or, or like it, it sounds like he's being like kept in a bunker somewhere you know i mean it, like the setup allows for so many horrific scenarios and when you realize that those scenarios are going through her head it's like oh god that's horrible <laughs> yeah I, I don't know if there's any way around it i guess there must have been i mean i guess you could have just had him run away if you wanted to completely avoid all of that yeah business then he could have made the decision like i can't even show myself in front of my mom i need to just bail until I figure out how but, to go be my old self but again. I, I, that would that would be so inconsistent with the character that we right. see, though, because he like he has to really stumble his way through understanding what's happened, understanding the the ramifications of it, understanding that he's not going to be able to talk people into understanding them. Uh, all of those scenes, like as awkward as they are, they're they're incredibly necessary for the way the character ends up developing. Yeah, I think that's fair, and I think I think the film is very careful in establishing where he is at. That that point in his life i think that carnival scene at the beginning is so crucial in terms of letting us know that he's right on that line between being a boy and being a young man of being somebody who's there at the carnival with his parents uh if who are, there's some kind of like you know actual line they could have <laughs> to say to show whether he was grown up or not like some sort of like you know barrier to entry that, that he can't quite reach Wait, what is but this? like say a cardboard cutout. <laughs> I know. That's, that, I mean, come on. That, that I think that again. That is a great, no, it's, and it's utterly smart. crushing moment. I mean, how yeah. how do you I, like? There are two. There are two. In front of the girl. Two moments, Especially just rough. after he said, "Oh, oh yeah, awful. I have been on this ride a lot All of times." Time. I love it. Great ride. There are two things in the film where I'm like, "How do you even come back from that?" And that's one moment. The other one, of course, is is Elizabeth Perkins. Like, how whether you find out what the truth is, that's a, that's a tough one to absorb. Well, I actually, to focus on that moment for a moment, like I think the writing of that scene actually handles it pretty well and that Susan is receiving everything he's telling her as like an immature man trying to get out of a relationship, you know, which is kind of her context for men at, the, at that point, yeah. you know, and of, of course, the built-in irony of her earlier saying like because he's a grown-up you know i think that that is that revelation between josh and susan is handled probably about as well as it could be given the setup um yeah. which 
we don't need to say again is a really strange setup as far as the carnival scene goes i the a lot of a lot of the things that don't land for me in this movie don't land because they're so broad they're so like huge and ridiculous is it because his old time machine wasn't plugged in so. No, I, 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 I love that. I'm a, I'm a sucker for completely unexplained occult things. And like, how weird do they make that Zoltar machine? Oh, like, so- you know, the the weird sort of swami in a mm-hmm. box thing is something you can actually see. The coin release mechanism is really cool, too. The, like, the, gotta- the shooting a coin into the genie's mouth to get a wish thing. It's just ridiculous. And I, it's can you so, go somewhere to so find out where video, various video games are in, the, in your city or state? Is that a thing? Apparently. Uh, there, up, up until a few years, there was like a... Go to City Hall and you fill out a form in triplicate. <laughs> there there was a place by Hot Dogs uh, back in the day. It had a bunch of old pinball machines and old video games. But they, it was across from Midway. Yeah. They don't ask right. for uh, yeah. for the location of every video game in town. Uh, they they ask for like carnivals and fairs. Mm, okay. And then I think that uh, I think his bud like does all of the research on his own and actually goes and finds the machine. And why he doesn't just wish to also be big, I don't know. But uh, maybe he's uh, maybe he's seen the trouble that it's yeah, put poor Mercedes like it's all, all it's, cra- it's really not all that it's cracked up to be. But going back to the carnival yeah. and the broadness thing. The <laughs> back fact, to the carnival. I, I want to go back to I, the carnival. I just, I just want to like not leave this point like hanging in the air like a coin that hasn't quite dropped into Zoltar's mouth. The thing I was talking about with the broadness is the fact that he wants to walk up to the girl that he likes and just be kind of hanging out next to her in the super casualist way possible. Once he gets there, he's like, oh, hey, I didn't even notice you there. Oh, what a strange coincidence that we're in line together. But he does that by going to the end of the line and shoving his way through like 30 right people. the middle, like Moses parting the Red Sea. Each of whom sort of like pops up like a, 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 a mole in a whack-a-mole game. Just like, what? But it's such a cartoon. This is such a live action cartoon and possibly no moment in it live action cartoonier than that sequence of bop, doop, yeah, hey. Yeah. Let's go back to the romance at the center of this film and how, how you feel about it, how you feel like it was handled, staged. Um, you know, as I said in my intro, there's something and this is maybe the, the Penny Marshall touch, or maybe this is a tribute to Tom Hanks and Elizabeth Perkins and their performances, but the film allows you to, kind of, to process scenes that are pretty skeevy, but there's some exceptions, I think, too. So I, I kind of wanted to go around the room and see, see what you all thought about that. There's an interesting trivia point on the film that uh, Deborah Winger was going to be in the film and couldn't because she was pregnant, but she apparently talked to Penny Marshall about the idea of gender swapping it and making the the big character a girl rather than a boy. And apparently Penny Marshall was like, no, that like you can't do that sex scene between an adult man and a girl who's 13 years old. Like that entire idea, like for her was just fundamentally disgusting if the genders were swapped. And I find that really interesting because to me, it still plays like a weird form of child pornography. I mean, this was the hot for teacher era though. This <laughs> yeah, like, I, I think social norms have shifted a little mm-hmm. bit probably to in a more sensible direction about that. Uh, but it is, I mean, it's done so sweetly here, though. I mean, uh, he, he says, acknowledging that it is uh, it's a fundamentally icky thing. But I think there's a couple of details it gets right. I mean, a 13-year-old boy would want the lights on 100%. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 but I always struck me like, you know, what would it have been like for him to come back 
from this having, I mean, cause, cause losing your virginity is a huge, you know, right, it's almost like it's some kind of rite of passage or something. And like, <laughs> and like to actually go back to childhood and have to, you know, live with that knowledge of what it's like and, and not get to experience it, presumably for years to come, it would be kind of its own psychic burden for Josh. Oh, for sure. It's, it's coming back from Narnia, you yeah. know, it's coming back from the world where you've been a grown up and having to be a little kid again. And I feel like there's in that last scene where he's walking into the house like in the giant suit you see very clearly that he's chosen that like he i think he understands what he's putting going to put himself through but he's he's consciously chosen the innocence of being a kid again and i think he's okay with it mm-hmm. but i i do think that you're right that that scene plays as well as it possibly could because of tom hanks's performance because there's such a sweetness to the way he reacts like you you really can believe that this is a boy who's never kissed a girl let alone seen a breast let alone touch a breast and i feel like penny marshall handles it as delicately and sweetly as such a weird moment could be handled well and it also works because there's that earlier scene at uh josh's apartment where they uh have the sleepover the platonic sleepover that uh, you know susan goes into clearly intending to you know have some wine and see what happens you know and it goes not at all in the direction she was thinking and it ends up being completely innocent and you know it's implied she responds to the fact that nothing did happen you know so i think because we don't just jump right into them having sex there is there's a courtship you know they date <laughs> you know there there is some um acclamation i guess on josh's part you know he's not immediately thrown into the deep end Uh, i think that makes the event itself play better than if it had happened in his apartment that first scene when when she came over you know but even so i feel like it maybe it maybe goes too far like in terms of in terms of them later kind of living together like her him living at her place it kind of seems like there's just something weird about that because it it implies that you know the sex worked out and that they're continuing to have that relationship and that just goes to some really weird places to me but they're sort of finding each other in the middle somewhere i mean because that first sleepover scene is so much about her reconnecting with her own childhood and with fun and uh and then of course you know he's now in the, in the business world and she is teaching him a, what it's like to be an adult and so it, there is kind of a, a place where they can kind of be together and it's there's not so great a distance there's a sweetness to that i mean there's a a way in there of acknowledging that Sometimes when you're alone with somebody else, when you when you enter into a sexual relationship with somebody else, you create a little world that nobody else is involved in. And it's entirely up to you, like what that world is. I, I think there's a way in which that scene shuts out morality and shuts out the rest of the world in a way that kind of feels daring. It just skews me a little bit. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit about favorite moments because the, the end of the film is really one of one of mine. I just think Susan's impulse to, you know, because she understands what the situation is, her impulse to seek him out and escort him back into his life and the in the kind of exchange that they have when he goes back to being a child and he's in the big suit and he turns to her. I just think there's, I mean, that's very much a coming of age moment, but I think it's so uh, beautifully handled and, you know, it kind of pays off this relationship between the two of them so nicely. Uh, what about y'all? I mean, we got to at least passing acknowledge how great the, the piano scene is. I think, we, you know, I can hear listeners screaming, are we going to talk about the piano scene? Uh, I mean, I can tell you, Part of why it's so great is that, I mean, Hanks and Lozier are clearly having so much fun together and, and doing it all 
in not one take, but just a few short takes. They're clearly doing it themselves. You cut that differently. And it's a much less effective scene. I think it's a really smart choice on Penny Marshall's. Uh, they they apparently part. went to huge efforts to like they had they had brought in dance buddy doubles to mm-hmm. do them, and uh, Logie and Hanks pretty much decided like we're no we're physically going to do this ourselves, mm-hmm. and put huge effort into learning the choreography. And we're very proud that they didn't have to use the body doubles. <laughs> and it's not perfect either. I mean, it's it's it's, it's, it's there's little imperfections that make it uh, all the more uh, winning. And Logie is just a delight in this movie. Chop six. I I, I, um, <laughs> I, I, I like. I like the trampoline scene a yeah. lot because because there's so many you see so many depictions of people you know getting back in touch with their childhood and, and it's all usually plays it's so corny uh, you can just see it happening with Perkins's character mm-hmm. in this and she plays it so well and it's not like overdone it's not like ah and that's when I realized I'd, I'd be living my life the wrong way but it's like oh I remember this this is this is this is something this is something I, I shouldn't have forgotten it's, it's just really nicely played so that's that's what I'd sing a lot well you you stole mine which was a trampoline but no. <laughs> but that's okay um because uh it, honestly I I like that whole night um so I will instead rewind a little earlier in the night to uh, Josh's entrance to the big party with his <laughs> full white tux and tails and just like his whole behavior at this like fancy party obviously the the corn uh, moment is is amazing eating the caviar and there's just a lot of fun physical comedy from from Hanks in, in there that is just really great and I do love the progression of that scene into the limo scene which is also very mm-hmm. very humorous and uh, like leading to the night on the tramp uh, so <laughs> <laughs> well you semi stole mine uh, for me for me it's the limo scene yeah like we have seen that scene uh where mm. two people like, like leave leave a party or leave the site of the mystery they were uh, examining or like leave wherever it is together and get in that car that car with the uh the rear projector screen on it and have the conversation together you know the the man and the woman conversation that defines what the relationship is going to be. We've seen it so many times and she's doing it by the book and he's not. And it's, it's touching just, all the buttons. It's hilarious. All the she's just like, she's working down a checklist of, you know, I'm feeling really vulnerable right now. Okay, that didn't work. You know, I am a strong, independent woman. Okay, that didn't work. And you just, you see her like trying all of her material on him and he's so oblivious because there's a freaking moon roof that he can pop his head out of and he's having so much fun. And just like watching the progress of her working her way through all of these different screenplays for the movie that's playing out in her head, which is not the movie she's in, I think is just a great little like acknowledgement of the history of cinema and the fact that this is a different movie from all those movies. Well, um, we'll have a lot more to say about Big next week when we bring in Shazam. Uh, But for now, we're going to take a break and come back with feedback. Now it's time for feedback, when our listeners weigh in with their responses to recent episodes and anything else in the world of film. Our last episode paired Philip Kaufman's 1978 version of Invasion of the Body Snatchers with Jordan Peele's Us, and our listeners have some thoughts on both films. Genevieve, want to get started? Sure. This letter was sent to us on Facebook from Kevin, who writes, One complaint that I have seen about Us is the functionality of the underground world. 
who feeds the rabbits, changes the light bulbs, where do the jumpsuits come from, the functionality of the people below being dressed similar to their counterparts above, etc. Based on what we are told, a lot of this does not add up, and we just have to say, accept the metaphor. Of course, this can be fixed with two words, unreliable narrator. All of the information about the others comes from Red, who I think we can all agree has left sanity and reality far behind her. Even when we get flashbacks from Adelaide's and Red's perspective, we have to understand that as a child, she may not have understood everything she was seeing, and her mind may have added details that were not there, or simplified things. If we take this route, we can have our symbolic slash metaphorical cake and eat it too. What do you guys think? Uh, everybody's looking at me because I was the one that uh, mm-hmm. inevitably brought up the, well, how are they feeding the rabbits <laughs> uh, business. I I don't know. Like, if you, when, when you move into the idea that, oh, this thing in a movie is only happening metaphorically, it's not actually physically happening. Well, then is the rest of the movie physically happening? Like, I do, I do like the unreliable narrator idea. Um, but then when we do physically go down into that space, you still have the rabbits, you still have the cleanliness of everything, you still have everything that she described is as you're seeing it. So I like I don't know that this argument holds water. Yeah, I think it's I think it's a twist on a twist, and and and, and already maybe one twist too many in this movie. So uh, um, so I yeah, sorry, can't. It's a uh, interesting thought. I think I probably with you all on that. I mean, it is a thoughtful idea, but thinking about us as being a film that reflects any one perspective or the perspective of or, or is being told to us through an un- unreliable narrator. Just uh, the, I I just I don't really see it that way either right i mean it's not kind of the perspective of the of the movie but i don't know it's i i've i've really tried to keep myself from trying to bear down too much on the other details of us because they i don't think the film holds up to a tremendous amount of scrutiny on that front and i don't necessarily think it's all that productive or even necessary to uh get into those details too much but I, it's just, it's amazing to me though that like, this film has inspired so much examination yes. of, you know, is this really a movie about socialism? Is this really a movie about, uh, you start with that one? Adoption. Is this really a movie about, did the two little boys change places? Just like all of these other theories, there's been so much like examination and thought. And it's like, it supports, if there's enough detail into, in this to support all of these think pieces. And yet in a movie that, that you say can't support thought, it's just it's a really weird conundrum. It can support thought. It just it can't it doesn't really support grand unifying theories terribly mm. well. Um, or or a demand for, for realism. Right. And I I mean I understand that. Like my problem comes in like I can accept a movie that's all symbolism. Like I can accept a movie where the stuff that either doesn't make sense or makes only a sort of dream logic sense. Like in Prelude to a Kiss, I don't I don't sit there and say, well, you know, exactly what is the magic that's making this function. Like the the magic of that movie is entirely thematic with what the story is doing. Here there's just such a mixture between this is metaphor and this is real, but they're both interacting in the same characters, in the same locations, in the same storyline. It's like somebody mixed their peanut butter and jelly, and then they're trying to tell me, don't taste the jelly. Now I'm trying to imagine an episode where we pair it with Prelude to a Kiss. And- <laughs> I, I love that. that I mean, how, how uh, that movie has not come up frequently. I, I like- you, you don't watch that movie every weekend? What's wrong no, with you? But I, I did like I really liked it at the time. But there's more. There's more. But wait. One of our listeners weighs in on the extraordinary sound design in Body Snatchers, and he's got quite a postscript to share. Tasha? 
So David writes, really glad you guys like this movie. I've loved it since I saw it at age nine. It has never lost its luster, and I recently realized it's probably one of my top 25 films. I'm glad Tasha mentioned the sound, but the film's masterful sound design goes beyond forming new sound effects. I did a scene-by-scene analysis graph of this picture for screenwriting class, which included tracking sound elements I'd heard many times but never noticed. Sirens, which become a marker of the reach of the horrors, appear in the very first outdoor scene of the film, a normal city sound. But so does the screaming sound. It's in the background, quite clear if you listen for it, right in that first scene where Brooke Adams is heading for work. These sonic cues appear even before we see the first trash truck of gray, dry body material, also very early, and they pop in throughout the film like the blank expressions staring at the camera from odd corners of the screen. These surprisingly early cues work like cinematic neuro-linguistic programming, loading meaning into the noises that will come to matter so much in the film's final third. They also work wonderfully after the film, because as we walk around a city, we will see plenty of affectless expressions on other people's faces. It helps us carry out the horror, as do the siren sounds, while the somewhat off, but believable as natural, screams sort of piggyback on these completely realistic noises to remind us of the extra danger that comes with this particular threat's otherworldliness. This is a smart, smart film, disguised as maybe just a smart one. (laughs) P.S. I once asked Ben Bird about the film, and he said that the pod hissy breathy noises were made by him blowing into his wife's placenta. I think he was trying to get rid of me by grossing me out. It was late at night at a Star Wars convention. He had to be tired of being approached by joyful strangers. <laughs> wow. <laughs> What's the name of the uh, child who's uh, Ben Bird Jr.? Ben Bird Jr. Okay. Yeah, he's he just all over this movie yeah. <laughs> in many different ways. Leaving, uh, leaving aside the placenta, as one must, uh, I love this letter. I, I love, I love the, the observation about the sound elements, which I certainly hadn't noticed. Um, it makes me want to go back and rewatch the film all over again, uh, because I think that's a really, really clever draw. I want to go listen for that screaming noise. Whew. Yeah, it's a really good letter, um, and it's it, it just goes to show when when you know truly great films off, often have so much invested in them that we that we are taking. He calls it on a neural linguistic level, but yeah, we were we're we're taking we're not conscious basically of some of the effects that these artistic decisions and are, are, are having on us as a, as an audience, and this uh, this articulates that so well. This is one I've never seen in a theater, and I'd like to see it with like a nice you know sound system. I think you'd really pick up even more stuff um but uh, oh you know one thing i wanted to bring up is not actually in our feedback here but um a listener we're kind of lamenting there was no uh recent um body center film and 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 uh we kind of forgot about the world's end and i think i forgot about it because you know it's it's androids and not yeah. not you know pod people or whatever but that is certainly kind of it kind of fits fits the description too yeah i'd completely forgotten about that movie as well and it's well, I forgot about the movie just no i i'd yeah. completely forgotten that it existed yeah. like a hundred percent oh it's a good movie yeah i love that movie i mean i love edgar wright but that movie for me was just like it was Great. like a penny dropped into water mm-hmm. like i could had completely forgotten it maybe mm-hmm. i need to revisit it no it's good uh, speaking of other feedback um, that we've been getting, we did have a uh, listener tweet out a little bit of criticism, I guess, or, or, or observation about how we've done a lot of superhero shows lately, and that that is continuing. 
Uh, that will be continuing next week with Shazam, and we've we've done uh, what have we done? We uh, recently we did Glass, Glass, Marvel. We did Captain Marvel. We did Spider Man into the Spider Verse. Hey, we've done a lot of sp- superhero movies lately. <laughs> we, we sure have. It's it, almost it, like there's a lot of superhero movies really out is. there, and we are cognizant of it in this specific instant too. It's like, do we really? We were actually really excited about doing Big and potentially even pairing it with Little, which is another <laughs> movie that came out this week that didn't quite get as well received as Shazam and. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think, I think, I think it's something. Also, that... we weren't able to see it in time, which is another factor yeah. that often of... comes up with four of us trying to see movies that may or may not be in general release. Um, there's a lot of practical concerns that yeah. with, the four of us have to be able to come together behind uh, a, a pair of titles, and that that is easier said than done. But I think that it's something that we're aware of, and we'll. Probably try to curb as much as we can, but it really is just about trying to figure out what the best and most exciting for us pairing is going to be, and that's what it ends up in. You know, so we've had a little bit of a run of superhero movies, but I think that those that maybe that will interest us less, and we'll delve into other things. Well, we also like to at least have one movie that people. Uh, you know, or, or everyone can see. You know, I think mm-hmm. we tend to choose wide release films and and uh, try to. You know, if we're not always the most creative with with our those choices, we're tend to be try to creative with our our pairings. But I don't know. We're probably not going to do Avengers Endgame. No, I'm I I'm, we'll I'm, do... I'm drawing a line in the sand. We are not doing Avengers Endgame. <laughs> I, I, I doubt we'll do this. You know, I'm looking forward to the new Spider Man movie, but I think we just we've we've done our Spider Man movie. Yeah. I mm-hmm. doubt we'll do Dark Phoenix because it's uh, Dark Phoenix. Um, <laughs> but uh, you know, it's, maybe this is the last one for the year. Who knows? Yeah. And I will say, you know, in our defense, although I don't really think we need to defend ourselves here, but those four superhero movies, uh, Spider-Man, Into the Spider-Verse, Glass, Captain Marvel, and now Shazam are all very different kinds of superhero movies, Yeah, um, like different from each other, if not necessarily all of them different from all superhero movies, if that makes sense. But um, I think you know, those four films have allowed us to kind of get into all the possible nooks and crannies of the modern superhero uh, movie conversation. And if it's all MCU stuff, it would, be, it would get pretty boring pretty fast. Um, the other thing, too, I would note is like even the worst of those movies, which for us was Glass, mm-hmm. uh, it was an irresistible chance to look back at the career of M. Night Shyamalan, who is you know, a major Hollywood director, very influential, and who's unbreakable, in, in my opinion, in the opinion of, of, of others, is you know, his best film, or one of his best films. So, so it was a good chance to kind of, or it was an opportunity that was hard for us to pass up, but maybe we'll pass it up in the future. Stay, <laughs> stick with us. I mean, we do always have the conversation. It's 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 a question of what are listeners going to be interested in? What are they going to have the opportunity to watch? What mm. are they going to want to watch? And, you know, we, we love the opportunity to do films like The Rider and talk about them in, in detail and recommend them to people who might not see them. But an awful lot of people literally just are not going to have any opportunity to see a film like The Rider until it hits VOD. So which, you know, on average is like, what, seven to nine months after the theatrical window. Um, So there now go see the writer. Yeah, yeah, seriously, if you if you couldn't see it in theaters, this is your opportunity to and then uh, go back and listen to those episodes. I wasn't there for them, but they were really good. And so was the film. Yeah, our next movie is Barely getting a theatrical release, but yeah. it's going to be ID, so, you know. <laughs> Stay yeah. tuned next week for that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, we try to balance these things out as much as possible, but we also try to acknowledge, like, what we know people are, are watching. Yeah, we are get, getting super eclectic ne- next time, so hang in there. 
Um, we always appreciate when our listeners share their thoughts and their recommendations. If you feel so inclined, we can feature your response on a future episode or post it on Facebook for discussion. To reach us, you can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. That's it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. In part two, we'll bring in the new superhero movie, Shazam, which deals with a much more desirable form of adolescent transformation. Look for that next Tuesday, or better yet, subscribe to The Next Picture Show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcatcher of choice. Find us at nextpictureshow.net, follow us at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow, and follow us on Twitter at nextpicturepod, so you'll always know when a new episode drops. Until then... You're stuck in the cavern of the evil ice wizard, and all around you are the carcasses of slain ice dwarves. What are you going to do next? I'm going down.